So the context is if I want to join some kind of group and they're a lot older, it's sort of a stereotype that they might not understand technology. They're used to a certain workflow that everyone is accustomed to. This example was that using PDFs are better than just having a website. And, and using search in Word is better than using search in the browser. Yeah, it's like they've been using Word for presumably decades. Word has been around for decades at this point, right? I guess so, yeah. Which is kind of a wild thing to think about on its own. It's a familiar tool. And, you know, I think this does actually have some echoes in, oh, like, the concepts that we use to understand the world. And I, you know somewhat recently went through this big shift in what my like default concepts that I was reaching for were. And it almost like changes the shape of how you see the world. And it's sort of like, <laughs> if you're using a Word document, or you're using a PDF, or you're using a website, the underlying text may still be the same, but your way of engaging mm -hmm. with it, the tools that are readily available to you, like you were talking about how it was an unselectable PDF. So you couldn't like copy paste a sentence easily. And once that capability is available, you have a new way of interacting. You could like easily put together like, here are my favorite quotes or something. Yeah. And that is not necessarily possible before. And I guess I see a parallel there in, you know, going from my atheist worldview to kind of not fully worked out Christian worldview. It's like I have different mental tools available or mental constructs or something. Did do you feel that way? That the concepts kind of shape how you see things? Yeah, for sure. You bring up the atheist worldview. I don't know what that is anymore because there's a difference between knowing what it looks like on the outside, like a, as a third party. Even if I did feel that way uh, in the past, right? I haven't been immersed in it. The inside experience and the outside experience, they have different lenses into reality. And even the same words have different definitions, right? When we say like, oh, you're my brother or sister, you don't literally mean that. You just mean like spiritually. And you have to know that within the context. I think I brought up last time that I've always been kind of immersed in like the vocabulary of Christianity, just because it almost like suffuses through Western culture. And, you know, I've right. read a lot of books. And <laughs> it's funny, I mentioned on Twitter not that long ago that the the Bible is the most important book in the canon of Western literature. And I, I like that statement because it is maybe kind of a microcosm of this that like, when I say that, I both mean it in the kind of secular way that like, this is the most influential book, this book, it almost like sets the conditions for all of the works that come after it in a number of different ways. And there's a sense in which this is completely accepted by secular people as well. But then I also mean it in a more literal way, like that this book, it's not just influential, but like it has the wisdom in it or something. You know, this is a good book as it used to be called. I, maybe we should bring that back. We should talk about the good book more. I've always liked the good news as a way of talking about the gospel. So I mean, like, this book is the priority as well as this book had all this influence, etc. And I mean, I could explain to a secular person, I mean it this way, but there's the experience gap or like the assumption gap. I don't know, it's your vantage point or something. You can only see certain things from certain vantage points. Kind of scary also, like what am I not seeing because of where I am? But that's actually one of the advantages of Christianity. It's kind of like one of the things that I want from it. And one of the things that Jesus talks about and comes up in other parts of the Bible as well is like, 
yes, it shapes you and it's supposed to. <laughs> right. It's one thing to say it's a bunch of like wisdom and you can learn some stuff. It's like mm. we are becoming born again, right? Mm. The idea of transformation. But if you think about it more deeply, talking about like baptism, going into the water and coming out, dying and becoming literally a, another person because you are a Christian now. It shows that it's not like just the quantity. You added some plus ones to some, mm. some attribute if you're like an RPG character. The idea of like being holy, set apart, mm. isn't just like times two, right? Born again, it has all these cultural connotations. And I think that's one of the reasons why people shy away from it. But it's almost like it's so sincere. And I mean, we live in an age of irony, right? Like maybe every age is an age of irony in its own way. But I definitely feel like there's a kind of fear of earnestness of just like owning something. It's almost like being willing to be made fun of, really. And I wonder if that's another reason why people shy away from the notion of being born again. You know what it made me think of is washed in the blood. Like mm. that's a that's like a very visceral. It makes me think of, of like Buddhist traditions. I'm not going to remember the name of the specific thing, but like where you meditate on the, the carnage and the, the hell realm sort of. But in a way that's meant to be kind of transcendent, like, yes, this is an aspect of the universe, and I want to understand it, I want to dissolve into it in a way. And I mean, there's some aspects of that to Christianity, too, like some of the old Jesus on the cross images that really like try to go deep on the suffering and, you know, the angst and like the torture, because I mean, being crucified yeah. is torture. The passion, right? Yeah. There are lots of different kind of flavors of Christianity or like focuses in how it's presented. The reason why we like talking to people is because we can hear from their perspective and, and maybe adapt or change our perspective. I think that's exactly what the church is supposed to be about, even though sometimes groups tend to emphasize the mental aspects of it more. How do we combine those two together? Yeah. Christianity has an almost inherent communal aspect to it. Like there's so much of what Jesus does is like engaging with his community in multiple ways. Going into the temple and tossing out the money changers is a right. like pretty antagonistic way to interact with the community. But then you also have the gathering of the flock. And I, th I mean, that's something kind of interesting on its own. It's like these different modes. Yeah, that essentially God meets us where we are kind of thing. And I think that's really good to point out. He interacts with the crowds. He does miracles. But he also he will meet the woman at the well. No one else was there, right? Or he'll go by himself to meditate. It's like all the range of, you would say, human emotions that he has, but he's also a god, which should be mind-blowing, but we kind of just take that as a random statement. Was it you who mentioned kenosis, like the emptying of godhead so that he can become a man and die? Um, I frankly don't know what I think happened. Does Jesus empty himself of godhead? Does that even make sense? Like... I'm not sure, but I'd say it's at least an interesting notion. The idea that you'd have to like drain away all your power in order to physically die. I wonder about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like an interesting theological issue that no one else cares about. <laughs> but, I mean, like, you know, that gets into stuff like the Trinity and there's been debates over many centuries, right? Mm. I guess it sort of exceeds my... I want to call it like my mechanistic thinking. If there are two entities, they're distinct and they can't be the same thing. But that sort of imposes for listeners, I'm holding up two objects, you know, these it, in the physical realm, I can't make these be the same thing. But I don't 
think that God is necessarily restricted, at least not by that kind of physics. I sort of think that God is physics or that God like manifests physics, but I don't know if that means that God is like bound by the rules of it. See, this is what I mean when I say that like becoming a Christian again really like reordered mm. my entire understanding of things. It's, it's not like it's really important for me to settle this question of like, what is God's relationship to physics precisely? Uh, but right. it's the kind of thing that now I have uncertainty about that I didn't before because like just this way of understanding the nature of the universe wasn't part of what I was thinking about. And now this kind of question is in my head. I don't know. I like that. It doesn't have to be a Christianity, but any view that's significant to you, it asks you to ask different questions. The pandemic has caused us to ask different questions that we did not have before or assumptions that are challenged. Well, I guess one thing is it definitely increases the mystery of the world, right? Mm. And that could be a bad thing, but it could be good if you feel like it makes you want to learn more about it. And it's a hard balance of like, how far are we going to go to try to explain everything away? I think people will say something like, it's possible to know God truly, but we can't know him exhaustively. It doesn't mean we're grasping at straws. <laughs> yeah. That makes me think of the story about the, the elephant and all the blind men like feeling the elephant. It kind of also works with C.S. Lewis. You mentioned the beam of light coming into the shed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think that light is? <laughs> it's it depends on how you engage with it. You're always looking at something and then looking from something at the same time. You can't pretend that you're going to find this objective observer view. We're always within some framework, I guess. And that's the thing with the elephant. The only person that can claim it's an elephant is the person that is the objective view. But none of us have that. So there is truth, but I can only see it through my personal lens. That's what I believe also. Which requires faith, right? That's the problem. Yeah, that's another thing. There's a lot of hidden faith in lots of different worldviews. I don't want to single any of them out because I think it's almost inherent. I mean, a lot of philosophy, in fact, is like, where is the faith? Let's find the faith and try to figure out what it's doing. <laughs> this is back a little bit. but The New Testament post-dates Christianity. Like the New Testament gets written and compiled after Christianity starts spreading and kind of because Christianity was taking off. I'm sure they were having like wide ranging philosophical debates. Heresies get born. And the word heresy kind of assumes a lot, but hopefully you know what I mean. Ideas that were declared to be heresies by the Catholic Church eventually. You have early schisms. I'm not sure why I find this so interesting. Maybe because it makes me feel like it's legitimate to question. Yeah. I don't know, like you have these really early Christians who are just converted by like a friend of a friend telling a story that's both wild to think about, like what kind of proof did they need? Or like what was their epistemic threshold, I guess, for conversion? What what did it even mean to them? I, I don't know and I wish I could know. But I wonder, you know, what kind of worldview reordering did they go through and We have some evidence of this from the documents that survived and from the Bible itself. I don't think that they were less legitimate Christians. You mentioned all (laughs) these like theological disputes. I I don't think that really like disagreements over theology necessarily are that important. I feel like someone's going to come for me for saying that, but I don't feel like Jesus would have cared a lot about people. But I don't know, very presumptuous for me to say, right? I don't know. What are are your thoughts on this? I don't think you would say either that nothing in theology matters. No, I wouldn't. (laughs) There are things that you just think are straight up wrong or right. 
And I would say that you could probably say that about theology. If you said Jesus wasn't the son of God, then it's more of like, what is a core belief? And I would hope that would be one of them because I don't see how the, the religion makes any sense. I agree. It's sort of not Christianity anymore if you strip out that part. Right. But there are probably other things like how do we do baptism or something. Where the threshold lies, this is a source of a huge amount of conflict. This is where you get the Nicene Creed is kind of mm-hmm. trying to establish like, okay, here are the ground rules. I think I mentioned a secular age last conversation. Back then, it was a lot easier to believe in God without a lot of evidence. But in some ways, we've probably lost a lot of things that they knew. People consider themselves as porous people. You have holes in you and that there are spirits and demons, external forces that can affect who I am. But now he says that we're buffered selves. We kind of have this almost armor against external forces, how I get to choose who I want to be, what I want to do. So you mentioned that we may have lost knowledge that the the ancients had. And I personally think that this porous selves notion like is more accurate than the idea of the buffered self. I think we are more permeable than we tend to conceive of ourselves. Culture gets into people's heads. It gets into their minds. This has certainly happened to me. It sort of circles back to the theme of transformation. Like when I was Mm. Kind of early in my starting to convert, I guess, one of my friends told me, like, you should just try going to church. But I warn you, if you go, you may find that it changes you. And that, I mean, it's kind of scary also, you know, the idea that you can be affected by things without deciding, I guess. Or, I mean, in the case of going to church, the decision would be going to church. But who you hang out with or what you choose to do with your life, those things end up changing you in ways that you can't necessarily know ahead. Yeah, I like that a lot. You're saying I need to like be okay with being vulnerable. Not just showing yourself, but the other part of vulnerability of like allowing people to affect you. And it's like, Otherwise, what are we doing in this world? We are going to change. And as much as I'd like to think the same or or want everything to be in control, when you talk to someone, whatever they say, it's subtly affecting you in some way. And they're not trying to manipulate you. It's just what happens, right? Mm -hmm. That is pretty interesting that someone told you like, hey, (laughs) like almost warning you that you might change. I'm just interested in this idea right now. So if it always Mm -hmm. pops up (laughs) whenever I'm talking about something, is the Jungian idea of individuation. Did I mention this before? So Jung is all about these archetypes, or this is like one aspect of Jung. I shouldn't overstate things. There's the like wise old person, and then there's the male aspect of that and the female aspect, and there's the young seeker, and there are all these different archetypes that manifest. And actually, this is to a large extent true. Like you see different archetypes that come up in culture after culture after culture. Although, of course, the notion of the archetype is its own It's like this own projected concept that then reorders how you see all these different other cultures. Like you see this generality in their specificness. It's like projecting a certain shape onto the data. And then maybe the data actually does kind of fit that shape, but it also has its own like distinct deviations from the shape. Anyway, it's kind of a tangent. So the idea of Jungian individual psychology, you have this individuation which is kind of like becoming more and more yourself, like whatever the essence is of you, you grow in kind of expressing that essence. 
And the idea of like going through change in how you express your essenceness, whatever the intrinsic part of you is. And of course, this also is the idea that there is an intrinsic part of you. Right. It's kind of hard not to see the soul in that notion. Mm. Although this is another kind of theological question. Do we have different souls or in what ways and degrees are our souls different if they are? I don't know. This is a question that only just occurred to me. Yeah, I, I guess people would, might be like, oh, I don't have one self. I have different selves. And and they're expressed like having alt accounts. Saying soul in the general sense seems like there's just one thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> could a soul have different faces? I don't know. And you could say there's also stages or, or it's still the same. Then you can get into the ship of Theseus, right? You're changing over time. Are you still the same thing? What is identity? All that. I guess a Christian point of view would say it's from God. It's a gift. It also doesn't change. And that's also why we can have hope. Because if our identity is chosen by you and you change your mind, then are you not the same person anymore? Like, how does it affect you, your circumstance? And so we would like to say God has chosen me and then my identity is rooted in that. And that hasn't changed. How do we realize that and understand that fact? If that is reality, how do I live it out? so that I can remember that when I go through suffering. It almost becomes, yeah, I'm wondering, like, does adopting and, like, sincerely believing it, does that change what you are in itself? Mm. And what part, you know, what I do think there is an unchanged part, some sort of, I would envision it as, like, a core or a seed almost. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I like the idea of the seed. Well, you know, this, you know, has echoes in (laughs) stories from the Bible, of course. Mm -hmm. I should probably look into farming and gardening because so many metaphors are from that. I'm just thinking like if the normal way we eat food is by ordering it online or going to a grocery store is a weird thing too, because like (laughs) it's just there for you and you buy it and we don't appreciate where it all comes from. Maybe that's why a lot of people have been trying to do that during this quarantine time. But I did watch a video about grafting. I don't know if you are familiar with tree grafting. A few verses in the Bible talk about this, specifically about how Gentiles, not the Jewish people, they are grafted into the tree. But watching a video, it was really interesting because it gets a little bit deeper. Okay, you have this branch, you cut it off, the trunk of the tree, and then you get rid of the outside like bark, I guess. Uh And you literally just stick it in so the insides of both the trunk and the branch are touching each other, literally. And eventually they fuse together and it looks like it's a part of the tree. And from the theological point of view, the Gentiles are grafted in and eventually it looks like they are of the same, even though they were from a different tree, right? It's especially interesting because then like if you graft on, doesn't the way it works, it'll still bear the kind of fruit that it bore before. Right. So say it was an apple tree, like different kinds of apples, they would all produce different fruit, assuming it's compatible. This also reminds me of the body metaphor that we talked about a little bit before, that all the limbs are different. And even on the interior, you know, the organs all do different things and have like different functions, but they are all part of the same overall entity, you know, working together in tandem. Honestly, it's a beautiful metaphor because they all produce their own different fruit. I think that says a lot about calling. We only need to copy someone else. Like you said, every part has its own function. And then talking about maintenance because it's a body, it's a dynamic living thing. It it also says like if one part hurts, we feel it, right? And we want to help them. I think that's awesome. Yeah, that that empathy is a sort of natural response. I mean, we use the family metaphor. We're all in the same family. But I guess obviously you care about your body. 
Yeah. I mean, Paul says that specifically. If part of your body is sick, <laughs> you're, you're going to be upset about that. <sighs> this also makes me think of in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruits. And this actually puts an interesting spin on that, which is that there are different fruits, but you can still tell whether a plum is rotten and you can tell whether an apple is rotten, but they don't have to be the same thing. And I don't know, you know, this is me sort of imposing my own interpretation and like looking for resonance between different passages. But I mean, I think that's one of the really beautiful things about the Bible personally is that it has symbolic resonance throughout And like Jesus is constantly pulling on the Old Testament and it feels very dense to me. Like it's all interwoven, interconnected, and there are like multiple layers to it. And something about that is like inherently pleasing to me. Like it just feels beautiful. Yeah, it's internally coherent and full of meaning. There's depth. I think the rational view makes everything flat. Like everything is one-to-one. We talked about this earlier of like things that, Jesus talks about refers to the past and also refers to the future and to the present all at the same time. Yes, there are sometimes the way I think of it is that there are like multiple scales happening. Going back to the body, like we all have gut bacteria and the gut bacteria does a lot of really important stuff. It actually seems to even be linked to cognition. There's, you know, emerging evidence and experimentation showing this, which I can't cite in detail because I'm not a biologist. But it's really wild the degree to which it can affect people. And it affects from digestion to mood to your mental faculties, which is wild. But the gut bacteria are distinct organisms from us in at least some sense, but we can't really exist without them. Or at least we don't exist without them. And I don't know, are they part of me, the human? I don't know. I'm assuming they have different DNA, but we're still part of the same system. Like they live inside of me. And because of the rest of me, they are able to flourish, I hope. You know, I hope my gut bacteria are doing well. I don't really know. Um, (laughs) I try to treat them well. You know, there's this symbiosis and Mm -hmm. gut bacteria, they're real, they're alive, they're individual creatures but they are within the system that is me. And the system that is me is like taking place on a scale on top of them. The gut bacteria are sort of on the scale of cells, you know? I actually kind of think of them as just like genetically distinct cells. Again, assuming they're genetically distinct. I feel like they must be. Otherwise, why would we talk about them this way? But you can layer another scale on top of that where I'm just one unit in the society or like in the community, which is part of society. And it's like the community exists. The community is its own entity. And I think it's a real entity, you know, like it's made up of things, but its boundaries are less distinct maybe But I also wonder if that's because we're on the subunit scale with respect to the community. So it looks more porous to us. But then if you go up again, another scale, like looking at the society versus the community, I don't know, I'm kind of losing track of my thread here. But I guess the concept is that they're like nested entities. Because I mentioned Polanyi, he would call it like a hierarchy of reality. Mm. And his analogy at first was actually language. So you have characters and then words and sentences, paragraphs. And like the rules within one affect the other one, but in a different way. So meaning that we have the rules of grammar, but that's different from like the rules of creating a story. Maybe we want to reduce everything to the lowest level, but say with the clock, you knew all the physics behind it, but that doesn't tell you if it is working or not. That's a whole different thing. (laughs) 
to like trying to tell the time by entropy. I mean, there is like some sense in which you can do that, but there are all these interpretive layers too. It almost feels like these different scales like communicate with each other through Mm -hmm. transmutation or something. I don't know. It feels really important. Like the nestedness, the like fractalness of reality feels really important to me. It shows up everywhere. There are all these patterns that have the small and the big. It's almost like they radiate. Yeah, this is like in a lot of different places. So like urban planning, Jane Jacobs talks about like complexity theory and the death and life of great American cities. The way she thinks of a city is that it's an organism, right? Mm. And her whole issue with the high modernist people that were trying to plan a city was because they thought of the city as just the land or the buildings, right? It's not the whole ecosystem, right, of people and the wildlife and the environment and all these things. And so we would want to see that in our society, in church, is the church the people? Is it the building? Is it the land? We can't meet in person. What is it now? I guess maybe the church is the whole, you know, Mm -hmm. like the system in motion. Maybe that's another thing. We want things to hold still so that we can examine them. Static, right but they won't. (laughs) They won't do that for us. (laughs) We can capture a snapshot. Right. That's true of observation in general, right? Those are all snapshots. And you can get into like the whole quantum stuff. What was it? You can't know the speed and the position at the same time. I've been reading more about quantum stuff and about number theory. And it's just absolutely wild. I, I guess for a long time, I had this kind of like scientism orientation toward the world where I was like, oh, we kind of have most stuff worked out. Absolutely not. Like, no, we don't. <laughs> Our physics is probably wrong. And we just haven't figured out how yet. You know, it's like how there was this jump from Newtonian physics, and then Einstein comes along and like blows mm-hmm. apart. That's going to happen again. Although we don't know how yet. I mean, that kind of like the fundamental unknowability of the things that we don't know yet. I mean, there's almost you can discover things but not yet know them in a way. It's like knowing is sort of having undergone the process of transformation of integrating something. It's so funny you bring this up because that's literally what Polanyi talks about. His word is tacit knowledge, right? Mm. It's you know more than you can say exactly what you said. He likes to use the word discovery and clues. You're pursuing clues in a certain direction. You're not arbitrarily just like trying all possibilities. There's a reason. There's something in you that's like, I think there's some truth about reality that I don't know. I'm not certain, but I want to go in this direction. I'm going to choose to do that. And that's a very personal, he would say, act of commitment. He was saying that like a certain view of science thinks that people are going to abandon what is what they think is already true just because someone gave them different evidence. He's like, no, you live through a certain lens. You're going to argue your way, even if they give you evidence to the contrary, because you have a commitment to it. And that's like skin in the game. Mm. You need to embody that before you even decide, I need to believe this thing. I, I think that's very, he's really capturing something that's very essential there. And it frustrates me to a degree. Like I wish yeah. we could all like interface more directly But I don't know. It's just not how it works. Although I wonder, like, what is going to happen with, say, like, Neuralink or something along those lines Mm. takes off and we develop telepathy, okay? Bear with me for a second. Let's say telepathy exists. How are we even... How the fuck is that going to work? How can you get across these conceptual divides, like, when 
people's worldviews are not really interchangeable. It's like you can directly communicate to whatever degree you share assumptions or axioms or something. But even then, like personal perspective, it's embodied, like it's physical, right? I, I have no idea. Like, is there a realm of pure thought? I don't really think so. Or, or maybe there is some realm of pure thought, but we can only access it subjectively and through our own thought. Yeah, I don't know. No, that's good. I'm kind of bought into his view of these things. Beyond tacit knowledge is personal knowledge. If we were to take someone's brain or extract data from it and just inject it into you matrix style, would that even work? I don't see how that would like help much for things that are not as specific. I suspect <laughs> with zero evidence, well, not zero evidence, but not with unscientific evidence that it might work in some way, but it'll be transformed by being passed through. You know, if you were to sort of <laughs> imagining a big syringe, like you suck out the data and then you inject it into the other brain, I think it would be transformed by going through the personal filter Okay, because if you think about communication, that's basically what we're already doing, right? Yeah. By talking, we're already transforming every time. So it's just like a more direct way of doing that. I mean, what if language is more mutually intelligible than uh, direct brain to brain? It certainly seems possible to me because language is a tool for kind of like condensing concepts into some sort of like standardized form so that we can then look at them together. When language was evolving, it's not like someone sat down and thought like, okay, I'm going to design a form so that we can, you know, talk about things. Like all of these like notions of what language is and what it does and what it's for and how it transforms us and how we transform it. All of this comes after language. Mm -hmm. At first, it just turns out to be useful. <laughs> you know, like someone's just like messing around, making noises and eventually you get these connections developing. Sign language probably came first, but it transforms us. It being there unlocks new capabilities. Just kind of like everything about evolution is like that, where you develop some level of capability and that sets the new conditions for what like future levels of capability can evolve. It's path dependent, right. I guess. There's like, there's hysteresis, like the system changes mm. and the changes of the system depend on the past of the system. It makes me think again of what you said about Jesus is speaking to the past, the present and the future all at once. Almost like the present itself is speaking to both the past and the future. This is also, I guess, a ship of Theseus thing. Like all of these systems that exist now, are they different? Are they the same? Like, because we came from there, but... We've transformed so much along the way. That's what I had to say. Yeah, that reminds me of technology as an extension of our body kind of idea. It's not just the device, right? When you first learn how to use a hammer, you're very aware of the grip. But then once you're used to it, you start thinking from the tip of the hammer. So it becomes almost like you. Or like driving. When you first learn to drive, it's super overwhelming because you have to think about like all these different things at once. You have to like coordinate your hands with what your feet are doing or like learning piano where you have mm -hmm. to coordinate your fingers in the beginning you haven't chunked the patterns you know, and the instincts and the feeling of it it's like the muscle memory but once you have like you said it changes your perspective like you almost when i'm driving when i'm parking i almost feel the boundaries of the car like it's not, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, I'm like remarkably bad at spatial, like my brain does not think well spatially, but because I've driven so much, like it's just, I, I lack words for it. I'm just like making hand gestures. Do I think in my fingers? I don't know. Maybe I do to some extent. <laughs> 
I think the point is like you're not like triangulating where the 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 box of the car is. Just like say basketball, you're not like calculating. You just feel it. You just know your body has somehow absorbed that information. I think it's interesting to think of these physical things, but then turning that mentally as well through knowledge. And we were talking about the whole PDF thing in the very beginning, right? We were talking about like focusing, right? Mm -hmm. The proximal is the thing that's tacit, the thing that's like in the periphery. And the thing you're focusing on is the the distal. Um, And when you talked about integrating things, he actually uses the exact word. Uh. Knowledge is essentially integrating proximal things into what is focused, like understanding the clues around you to create coherency. I I actually think of it as like, I don't know, let's say there's an orb. And like, I mean, there is a sort of a way in which the human is orb-like because my sphere of motion is sort of orbish, maybe more like a kind of lopsided elliptical kind of thing. Anyway, you know what I mean. And it's like something starts on the edges and then it sort of comes inward. Uh, Mm. I I don't know. That's just like instantly how I think of it. It's almost like I just brush it on the edges at first, like just feeling it with your fingertips. And then it sort of comes like the knowledge comes in. And then once it's in, it can go out again. Like, yeah. (laughs) So I think what you're saying is like good definition of his word uh, indwelling mm. and i think mm. it's such a good physical word from a theological point of view like indwelling in the holy spirit mm. we say that in christianity like the spirit is in us like i want to indwell this idea until it becomes like second nature in another way right and i think that is what life is about indwelling in christ to mm. become like him that's one way of looking at it but Again, that's not a mental thing. It's mental plus physical, right? Because it's through the body as well. So it's not just like I assent to all these things, but like I'm figuring out in my own way, maybe that's the fruit, right? By embodying it, we produce fruit that shows that we actually understand. It's active. Yeah, it's it's doing mm. as well as thinking. And yeah. yeah, thinking is its own kind of doing in some sense, but physical doing matters too. Oh, you know, fruit goes through evolutions, right? Like it starts as, I mean, seed is like a kind of fruit, but it goes through like a whole cycle, you know, it starts small, it grows, it ripens, and then eventually it does rot and fall apart or it gets eaten, I guess. Fruit has different destinies <laughs> that it can uh, end up in. It reminds me of metamorphosis then with the butterfly. But actually, because you, you're talking about the process of fruit Sunday. My, one of my friends was talking about John 2 and the first miracle that Jesus did, turning water into wine. Mm. And what does wine come from? It comes from fruit. That's another thing of pointing to the future, meaning when he comes back is a wedding feast. And the first miracle was at the wedding. The fruit is processed. I mean, it becomes something better than fruit because people like wine, right? (laughs) The ultimate fruit would be wine. There's also an interesting dimension there where when you go back to the era when Jesus was alive, water is more of a like fraught endeavor. You know, it's not necessarily clean. There could be little beasties in there that'll make you sick. I don't know whether that was actually really applicable like in that specific time and place. What kind of water filter, like how good was the water available to the wedding? I have no idea. But it occurs to me as a sort of an additional theme. Oh, my little dog says hello, by the way. Hello. Like the wine is more kind of trustworthy, I guess, in a way. Although now I'm curious, this is not an empirical question that I would have expected to be brought up by like contemplating the Bible. But the boundaries between these things, again, are permeable. The historical knowledge and religious knowledge or the, I don't know, symbolic resonance or something. 
end up kind of bleeding into each other. I, I think that instinct of wanting to keep them combined is a good thing. The more you want to separate, the more it becomes abstract. And the more, is this even real at all? Or is it everything just a, like a story? Which it is, but I believe this not just because it's a fun story that I'm going to tell myself that makes me feel better. I think a big part of it is that I actually think it's real, right? Yeah, me too. Within history. Within history, but also in other ways. <laughs> and I guess, as you were saying, they, they can't really be separated out. Maybe that is part of the, the truth of it. Think again of density or like richness mm -hmm. or something. It's true because it is like that. Or like that is the truth of it being manifested or like in action. Yeah, that goes into this whole theme. Because if it was a true apart from the history or the actual reality of it happening then it gets back into that scientific ideal of it being abstracted from reality. It's just like these statements in the world, and those are just happen to be true. I think that ties back to God becoming a person. God could be real, but he actually is real within the person of Jesus. This makes me think again of our earlier conversation about how all of these things that I thought of as being like symbolic I now think of as like, it's not that they're no longer symbolic, it's like symbolic and literal. An example is that Christianity really changes the trajectory of history. It changes human cultures, especially in the West, but it diffuses out in other ways also. I'm most familiar with the West because it's like the cultural lineage that I am part of. So Christianity changes how people think and Christianity changes people's assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. Poyani is an example of this, actually. And before I thought of that as just like confined to the intellectual realm. Oh, it just changes how people think about stuff, write about stuff. It changes their metaphors, you know. And now I think of it as like, no, actually, Jesus brings about this material ontological transformation, you know, like before we weren't saved and now being saved is possible or like it is a state that we are now able to attain that we weren't before. Because like if I literally believe, you know, that Jesus comes to earth as a historical figure embodying God, that is what that means. Like that's what happened. And it's kind of, it feels radical. It feels like weird to say that to me, to say that history and theology are inextricable from each other. It's, it's almost like it's inappropriate in a way. Like if I went to a history conference or something and brought this up, people would be like, hey, mm. you're crazy. What are you talking about? Even like Christian historians would not necessarily talk about it in this way as like, this is the transformative work of Jesus. Like, right. this is it happening? I'm not even sure that this really makes sense as I'm saying it. Because again, I should mention this at least twice that like, I'm still working all of this out for sure. Like, and I don't think that ever really ends. It doesn't seem to end the working stuff out part or the like, trying to figure out like how systems function and where I am in the systems and what is the relationship between past states of the systems and current states. Totally agree. Yeah, we're all working on it. I guess I think there's a difference between not wanting to be biased, but then also knowing that you are biased regardless. I kind of want to embrace the fact that if that is such an important part of your life, it's, it would be weird to say, like, I'm trying to be neutral. And it's like, well, I am Christian. So then that's how I see the world. It's not just a belief. It literally affects all things. I might not need to like say that explicitly, but like it's going to come out in some way and acknowledging that it's personal versus like this fake 
neutrality, I guess. It's probably, you know, a result of like where I am in my personal journey and my my personal evolution that I keep coming back to this theme of like the atheist conception of religion as being like a realm of make-believe kind of, or at least this is how I thought of it when I was still an atheist. I thought of it as like a sort of a realm of the imagination. And now that I'm inside this new worldview, I'm like, oh, wait, no, it's not like that at all. Like, you know, it's not a separate sphere. I don't think of uh, material reality as being like distinct from religious reality. It's just all the same thing. It's new and exciting to me. It's this holistic. Maybe that's one of the things that is so, I almost want to say like intoxicating about Christianity and, and about faith is like, becoming part of this integrated whole. I don't know. Indwelling. Yeah, indwelling. That must be something that we instinctively need, like the desire to become whole. And I think that any religion has answers to the big questions that people have. I might not believe in a different religion, but I can understand why if you do, they have some internal coherence. This is probably why people believe things that just don't make sense to anyone else, but it still works for them, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. My concern is more of conspiracy theory things where that is its own worldview and literally shapes how they see the world. And I guess obviously I don't believe it. So it makes me wonder how to engage with those people. Interesting. It's like the conspiracies are, are sort of divergent along different axes or something. Yeah, everyone is kind of interested in QAnon at the moment. And I looked yep. into it a little bit and I was like, yep. yeah, I don't really understand where you guys are coming from. Or it's like I understand aspects of it. Some of their concerns I even share. I don't think that they're happening in the way that they think that it is happening. <laughs> and I think that's part of the issue of like there, everything in it is rooted in some truth. But they take it to an extreme or or they extrapolate all these things. And then when you dialogue, well, you want to acknowledge that those things were true. But then how do you also like say that I don't believe the whole thing? And this maybe relates to heresy too. How do you engage without dismissal? Because that would turn them away entirely. Mm -hmm. Or if you acknowledge part of it, they're like, oh, then you believe the whole thing. And how do you kind of navigate that? Especially since in conversation, I've found that people will assume that you agree with them if you don't articulate that you don't, which is uh, weird and interesting. Like, why is that the assumption that if I listen to you, it means I agree with you? Why do we think that? I don't know. But I've had this happen to me a number of times where I thought that I was just like hearing somebody out. And then I find out later that they thought that by listening and asking questions, they thought I was agreeing with them. And that's not what I meant at all. I was just interested in where they were coming from. And actually, I had a friendship end over this where I found out kind of abruptly that how this person thought our relationship had worked was that they thought that whenever they said something to me, and I didn't argue with them, that meant that I was assenting. That was not how Um. I thought things worked. (laughs) So I figured out from their own pattern of behavior, which is whenever I said something that they disagreed with, they jumped in with the like combative, no, we have to argue about this. Eventually I realized, oh, the way that I wanted to engage was where we both heard each other out and just kind of agreed to disagree. They were not on board with that. They thought, no, we need to hash out every disagreement. It ended up that our approaches to the friendship were just incompatible and it kind of fell apart. Mm. Yeah, which was sad, but it was educational also in terms of it's the assumptions, right? Like the assumptions you bring to the table 
change what you see. You know, we had different experiences of that friendship. Like what we thought it was, was different. I don't know. Yeah. I'm thinking about like my parents. I felt I actually experienced this, but I was feeling that when I went home for the quarantine for a few months, actually. And I like couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And learning the hard way of how to continue the lines of communication, right? Dialoguing and not having judgment on them. And same with them. None of us can change their thinking by arguing it, right? Or saying they're just absurd or something. If someone told that to us, we're not going to change. Yeah. Like, of course. So why do we feel like that's okay? It's just because it's a reaction. We haven't learned how to. Patience. Patience can be painful. Yeah. This is something that I like about our conversations, that the same themes pop up in Mm. these different forms. But we didn't even talk about the rationalism to religion pipeline at all. Well, we did in an oblique way, which is that I think people are seeking this transformation to become something different. It's scary, but it has its benefits also. People want it. (laughs) Some of us anyway. It's a leap of faith. And yeah, there's a way in which it's a little bit dangerous to start because once you start changing, it's hard to reverse the process. Like if you decided, oh no, actually I want to go back. I'm not sure that you could. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Hope and Source. To continue the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at left underscore pad. If you'd like to check out the transcript with links and references, please visit hopeandsource.com.